Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. John Davenport, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University, giving a talk entitled Kierkegaard and Dietrich von Hildebrand on Human Loves. This talk is part of the Philosophical Legacy of Soren Kierkegaard Lecture Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, uh, I really am enormously indebted to Professor Crosby, not only for the review of my book, but for inviting me tonight, and of course for his own work on von Hildebrand. I should say that I'm still learning von Hildebrand for sure. Um, and, uh, and so if I stumble in anything I say about von, about, uh, von Hildebrand's work on love, I hope you will forgive me, uh, but uh, feel free to correct me. And also feel free to, um, you know, to ask questions about anything uh, in Kierkegaard. It could be something with respect to fear and trembling rather than works of love, which I'm mostly going to, um, going to focus on tonight. Uh, so, but don't feel we have to keep the conversation to that. If you came out on a Sunday night, you must have strong interests in this area uh, of your own, which we can get to. So um, the question behind this work comes from the sense that different forms of love we experience are crucial phenomena in human existence. They help to give shape to our purposes and meaning to our lives. Among them, romantic love that's hopefully consecrated in marriage, deep affection among family members, close bonds with a few dear friends, and wider relations of care for associates, we maybe co-workers, are central to our lives in contemporary culture. And moreover, something like these sorts of relations seem to be found in virtually all cultures around the world, though taking slightly different forms in many. And over time as well, uh, one can find uh, even versions of romantic love, uh, arguably back among the ancient Greeks. We do not think of these special love relations, as contemporary philosophers call them, as necessarily only self-interested, although because they often include concern for the other person's well-being for its own sake. But we do recognize that these special loves are distinct from a more controversial form of love that's held up in biblical traditions, and especially in Christian faiths, as a central virtue, namely, the agape which names God's pure love for creatures beyond anything they can merit, deserve, or reciprocate, and its human expressions as love of neighbor, as it's often called. Unlike the special loves in most contexts, at least, love of neighbor is described by its adherents as a duty that should extend to all persons, like universal benevolence in Stoic and Buddhist traditions, but with special appreciation for each human person as a center of free will capable of responding to love and loving in turn. If that's right, then it should disturb us, I think, that philosophers and theologians, starting from the famous Danish existentialist, Søren Kierkegaard, have argued that this morally required form of agopic love is contrary, in most respects, to the motives that constitute our special loves, which appear possessive and selfish by contrast, at least as Kierkegaard interprets them. Following Kierkegaard, the Swedish theologian Anders Nugren drove the wedge even deeper in an influential work titled Eros Agape. There he developed Plato's account of love in the symposium as a sense of lack seeking completion, looking for some kind of fulfillment for the, the loving agent, and the need of some good that the loved person promises to add to our being, another way of thinking of it. This has become the basis for the eudaimonist tradition in moral psychology. 
So broadening this model of eros, Plato had argued that all human motives have this sort of form, which we might call an erosic form. That's the term that Alan Sobel uses in his work, The Structure of Love, for this kind of motivation. This idea is taken up and modified throughout the later eudaimonist tradition. So Nugren took from Kierkegaard the idea that agopic love is not erosic in that sense. Agopic love does not seek fulfillment of the lover through unification with the goods that the beloved or loved object promises. But instead, the person filled with agopic love projects from the agopic lover towards the neighbor without regard to the neighbor's merits, qualities, or values. So makes an effort to take an interest in that person as neighbor apart from, as Nugren understood it, any value or merit that that uh, neighbor might have. Contrast this with Aristotle's account of noble friendship, philia, as a love that indeed seeks friend the friend's good, but out of respect for his or her virtuous qualities. This contrast between eros understood in that sense as a, a lack seeking fulfillment and agape has deeply shaped 20th century philosophical works on love. While he denies that eros and agape are incompatible, C.S. Lewis famously portrayed them as need love versus gift love. It's a nice formula for the contrast. This also following Nugren. The American analytic philosopher Alan Sobel makes Nugren's dichotomy the basis of his own analyses and a series of continental thinkers from Martin Buber to Emmanuel Levinas, Gabriel Marcel, and now Jean-Luc Marion have conceived agopic love as a kind of self-donating response to the other person's alterity, difference, or independent uniqueness without regard to the self, without regard for the person doing the loving. Though the contrast is, I think, less extreme in Buber and some of the earlier personalists than in Levinas, who's so influential in continental philosophy today. Are we then stuck with the conclusion that the special loves are inferior or deeply marked by self-interest because of their erosic form or their neediness or possessiveness? Or can these loves be transformed in some way by connection with agopic love, which Christians regard as ennobled in us by grace, or enabled rather by grace? In the last decade, there's been a lot of work on Kierkegaard seeking to show that there is not an unbridgeable divide between neighbor love and what he calls the preferential loves that's his term for the special love relations. Um, so it, it looks like there's a sharp contrast in Kierkegaard's work, but a number of commentators have tried to show it's not quite as deep as it may seem. I will argue that Kierkegaard does, does not actually agree with Nigren's dichotomy, although he is still very critical of preferential loves in their natural form as unaltered by agape. He does offer a couple routes to understand how agape can infuse the special loves. But significant problems remain with the way Kierkegaard relates these types of love. And the work of Dietrich von Hildebrand offers better steps towards a fully satisfactory set of solutions, in my opinion. So the handout is an attempt to try to overview some of the key elements of Kierkegaard's view uh, and contrast a little bit with some of the key components of um, von Hildebrand, as well as I understand him on love. Um, so I begin with, with three quick notes on Kierkegaard's famous and influential book, The Works of Love. First, it supports much of what is said about ethical life in other texts, such as uh, Either Or and Fear and Trembling, uh, which were uh, titled under pseudonyms, uh, and also the Purity of Heart discourse, written like Works of Love uh, under Kierkegaard's own signature. Second, like Aquinas, Kierkegaard treats the agopic ideal of religious faith as a revealed command that, quote, did not arise in any human being's heart. 
It's something that's revealed to humanity, right? And he holds that loving in this way requires grace, although not necessarily special grace to particular individuals. As Kierkegaard says more than once that God's love is something like a secret hidden wellspring of all human loves. He uses the metaphor of a, uh, of a lake. You know, we see the waters rising to the surface from some deep source within, and we don't know that source. Well, that's like God's love feeding into the different human loves. Um, third, as if to emphasize this source thesis, as I call it on the handout, Kierkegaard does not actually use the term agopic love, but instead uses a word for spiritual love in Danish that's a little bit more neutral the word kerleheld. This serves his apparent desire to indicate how spiritual love can inform other forms of interhuman love. Although some aspects of his analysis, I think, still end up making this difficult. So in short, I think he wants to hold a view that agopic love can infuse the special loves, but we can see how deep the tension is between them when we look at his, uh, at his way of characterizing each. As I've noted, what von Hildebrand calls the natural categories of love for family members, friends, spouse, etc., Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard calls preferential loves, and that's to emphasize that they single out particular people. To love this one person above all others, to love, to love him in contrast to all others. That's a, a passage from very early in Works of Love. He seems to have best friends and romantic partnerships especially in mind in choosing this term to contrast with agopic love's universal directedness to all neighbors without distinctions or exceptions. In hindsight, this way of characterizing the difference between agopic and the natural or special loves may have been a rhetorical mistake. For it seems to equate focusing on particular individuals and loving people for their bodily, psychic, or social or historical properties perhaps in relation to us. And that's not an obvious equivalence. At least the terminology can make it sound like he's equating or conflating those two. It does not well capture Kierkegaard's own main objection to the familiar interhuman loves either. His objection, as I interpret him, really is that these loves are self-interested. They prefer certain individuals because of those individuals' properties which the lover desires to relate to. These could be bodily uh, features, features that trigger an emotional response in us, something we value through cognitive judgment even. Um, given their apparent value for our lives, right, these particular people promise something that enhances our existence. That's Kierkegaard's complaint in a nutshell. The lover is drawn to these distinguishing properties of the other person because their relation, because uh, relation to the goodness of these properties promises to enrich his own being, the lover's being. So Kierkegaard writes that, quote, passionate preferential love is another form of self-love. This is what on the hand that I call the preference implies selfishness thesis. The works of love does not offer a very clear explanation of it. There are clues to it all over the place. Uh, and his reasons for it include um, uh, several of the other sort of subordinate theses I have on the handout. It's not just that in erotic love and friendship, we are self-loving by indulging our preferences or our appetites. The real problem, in his view, is that such devotions, at least in their pure natural form, are not based on anything higher, any objective good to which they respond for its own sake, at least in his view. Instead, quote, this preferential love actually gives itself the significance by which it swears, um, an idea that you find in several of Kierkegaard's works. What he seems to mean here is that I love the other person for their constellation of traits because appetites that I already have select these traits as good for me. 
I respond to the other uh, to no values in the friend or the erotic beloved except those that are conferred by my prior inclinations, dispositions, or appetites. So I'm not really apprehending a value that transcends me, that has some kind of objective authority for me on this view. I'm rather just noticing something I'm attracted to, uh, like an iron filing being drawn to a magnet. Um, at least that's, that's Kierkegaard's view here, or his complaint about the natural loves in their unaltered form. So, given that they have no firm foundation on this view, these loves lack an enduring continuance. Their motivating power can quickly disappear if my appetites alter or the beloved loses those properties that my appetites light up as good. And this is very similar to the complaint that Nugren gives about Eros in his later work, so indebted to Kierkegaard. Thus, underlying Kierkegaard's distinction between preferential and agopic loves is, quote, the difference there is between the play of feelings, drives, and passions, in short, the play of powers of immediacy in desires or in want. What a difference between this and the earnestness of eternity, the earnestness of the commandment. In other words, the appetites of our immediate nature are those passively acquired or given by our animal form, whereas neighbor love is, quote, a matter of conscience, and thus not a matter of drives and inclinations, unquote. Neighbor love, agopic love, has a different motivational structure. It aims at the well-being of the neighbor for her own sake, rather than being drawn towards the other person as part of the agent's own happiness or perfection. So, in Kierkegaard's view, we have to will to love the neighbor, that's his phrase, against the natural grain of human nature, instinctive inclination, social mores, peer pressure, and so on. Like a Kantian goodwill in this sense, Agopic love is a volitional motive actively formed by the agent rather than something caused by the attractiveness of the other person, giving our own appetites or desires for happiness or completion. Agopic love then is free of, quote, natural determinants. This seems to explain several of the other theses that Kierkegaard uh, develops in works of love. For example, that agopic love is more autonomous because it's grounded on freely accepted obligation. It's not dependent on the other in the way that acquisitive desire is. It flows freely from the agent's will. And in that way, in that sense, it doesn't depend on the object of love. And on preferential loves, unlike preferential loves rather, agopic love shows an equal regard to all other persons without distinction because it's not based on their contingent or distinct features. Again, notice the similarity to Kant on the goodwill. And unmodified preferential loves are possessive by contrast in Kierkegaard's view. For example, he thinks that jealousy lurks in the heart of all friendships, especially in the desire for exclusive or distinctive regard from the other. Pay attention to me and not that other friend, right? It's that aspect of friendship that's worrying him. By contrast, whereas agopic love does not demand reciprocation from the other and thus does not aim at exclusive relationship with the other or God, it's, in that sense, completely giving. It's not demanding anything exclusive from the other person. If this is a correct interpretation of what Kierkegaard means, then his basic distinction between preferential and non-preferential loves derives primarily from the underlying distinction between the two modes of motivation, uh, rather than two types of goal. And these are similar to, to Nugren's Eros and Agape. In particular, in some passages, Kierkegaard seems to anticipate Nugren's central premise that if love is property-based or responds to contingent features of the beloved that vary between people, 
then this love has to be erosic and so formally self-interested. At least Kierkegaard seems to endorse that. I want to rescue him from that um, interpretation, but it can definitely look like that in certain passages. So then he risks being committed to what I call the first Nigren Sobel argument on the handout. That's the argument that agopic love cannot be property based. And so it, in that way, it directly contrasts with all of the, um, the forms of, uh, of, of natural love. I want to argue that despite appearances, Kierkegaard does not actually agree with Nugren on this. Um, but we'll see, I think, that von Hildebrand has a clearer way of avoiding this problem. So the arguments are um, given on the second, uh, at the bottom of the second page of the handout uh, in sort of informal deductive mode, which we can certainly talk over any of these if you, if you wish in question period. Um, let me move to the next section. I want to make sure I leave time for von Hildebrand here. I may skip a couple things. The infusion thesis, as I call it, is the topic of the next bit here. How can agopic love inform or transform preferential loves on Kierkegaard's view? Even if we say that it only applies, that his complaints, that is only applied to natural or spontaneous forms of preferential love, Kierkegaard's conception of these loves leads to several problems. The main problem concerns whether there can be any positive relation between neighbor love and the preferential loves for romantic partners, friends, children, co-members of communities, and so on. And even perhaps for our dear self, as Kant called it, as an object of self-concern. Kierkegaard's source thesis implies that all human forms of love are at least inspired by Kierleheld, or ultimately derived from God's creative source. But this is one, and this is one of his reasons for holding that agopic love demands giving people the benefit of the doubt, awakening their own capacity to love by giving them every chance, and even showing our enemies agopic love that could inspire them, to, inspire them to reconcile with us. Some of Kierkegaard's most interesting reflections on neighbor love are in the second part of the work, the second series where he develops a lot of these uh, particular features of, you know, love hides a multitude of sins, it's very forgiving, it gives people almost infinite benefit of the doubt. Uh, Kierkegaard has lots that's very interesting to say on these topics. Um, so he has titles like this, right? Love builds up, love believes all things, love hopes all things, right? There are themes like this in many of his edifying discourses as well. Yet if preferential loves are erosic and neighbor love is non-erosic in basic structure, well then there's just a logical opposition between them. They could only be co-present in one action as two distinct motives for the same act. They could not combine or synthesize, which is what I mean by a positive relation. Just like we can have two completely different motives sometimes for the same action. There's no you know, um, organic connection between the two. We you know, ask a, uh, a friend to help us both because we want to see the friend and we need to you know, get a piano moved or something, right? Two completely separate motives. Um, so you could certainly have um, neighbor love and uh, natural love combined in that way, but that's not much of a combination. Some Kierkegaard scholars thus conclude that agapic love acts only as a kind of a filter for preferential loves in Kierkegaard. Conscience, though uh, through awareness of our obligations, asks whether we're treating our friends, our spouse, our child, our coworker, or even ourselves also as neighbor, and at the same time whether we're attending sufficiently to other people in need while devoting um, natural loves of various sorts to these significant others in our lives. So in that way, agopic love can, you know, can interact with the natural loves 
by act, acting as a check, you know, as a, a kind of a limit uh, to the extent to which we pay attention to our friends, even our you know, spouse, right, in a married relation. Um, and you know, look at the ways in which those loves are expressed in the special love relations. Make sure that they aren't in violation of someone's basic rights, for example, right? I mean, that might be a way of thinking about uh, you know, agopic commands and agopic duties as a check or, or control on the natural loves. But the problem with that is that it merely gives us a negative relation between these different forms of love. It says nothing about whether we can sometimes show too little appropriate special love relationship uh, to certain persons, give them too little of that special kind of love appropriate in our particular relation with them, or whether agopic love may sometimes be expressed in and through a given form of natural preferential love. Could it be the case that agape might even need to be expressed specifically in this way to some others in some cases? That's a, an interesting idea, but not one I think you can easily get from Kierkegaard. And that's what I mean by positive relation. Kierkegaard does seem to want this, despite all of the uh, way that he opposes these kinds of love. He seems to say that Christianity demands that conscience spread to all of the other loves that neighbor love commanded by Christianity now takes possession of every other form of love. It's one quote from him. That it even makes, quote, erotic love a matter of conscience. In every special relationship, in loving the beloved, we are first to love the neighbor, Kierkegaard says. He says, your wife must first and foremost be to you the neighbor. That she is your wife is then a more precise specification of your particular relationship to each other. But what is the eternal foundation must be the foundation of every expression of the particular. So of course the relation to the wife or the husband is different than to a friend or a child or uh, you know, some other special love relationship. But if agopic love is supposed to be at the heart of each of them. Seems to be what he, he wants. This and similar passages imply the infusion thesis. Agopic love can infuse and transform all the natural forms of preferential love. As Kierkegaard puts it, agopic love willed by the human spirit and inspired by God's love can, quote, lie at the base of and be present in every other expression of love. So he even calls natural loves a kind of noble fire that can be taught to preserve love for the neighbors within them. If this neighbor love contributes positively to all the other forms of love, it must enhance these forms of love for, other, for another person qua sibling or parent or friend or partner in a vocation for some good work or rom romantic relation. Enhancing what we will do for these others in light of what's distinctive about them and our concrete relation to them. But this means loving them rather than a false image of them, as Kierkegaard stresses. So he's quite strong on that point, that you're to love the particular person in all their concreteness. And in recognizing this, you're recognizing the personhood that they share with all other persons at the same time something that goes beyond any of the properties or features or traits of their character. Unfortunately, though, this crucial potential for infusion by agape seems to be ruled out if the preferential loves are essentially erosic in Kierkegaard's view. And this is where I think von Hildebrand will especially help us in correcting that. For then the lover will be aiming at his own perfection through union with the beloved in any of the natural loves rather than aiming at her good or encounter with her in, its unique, in her uniqueness for its own sake, or for expressing these aims in attentions particular to the relevant kinds of special love. 
Now, one way to avoid this outcome for Kierkegaard is to focus on the point that he thinks that the um, natural loves in their uncorrected form are possessive. Because then it's not the natural loves per se that are incompatible with agopic love. It's just the possessiveness of them as we get them kind of from instinct. So then the view would be that we can correct their possessiveness and now you know, they can be combined with neighbor love in our lives. So that's one solution. Let me mention one other that's a little more subtle um, that we see in the section of works of love called um, uh, The Duty to Love People We See. This particular section is maybe the, one of the most promising in the book for my uh, concern. He argues in this section that we have this duty to care about people in their concrete particularity despite all their flaws. In this section, he suggests that this is a matter of will, uh, of an effort that we make to be devoted to our beloved, to a friend, to a child, to anyone in a particular special love relationship, even if they change over time. Um, if the natural love has been informed by agopic love, it should not change in the way that a merely natural love would uh, when the other person changed, right? Reminds you of a poem from, uh, uh, from Keats or Shakespeare, right? Many poems on this topic, right? That the, uh, the love doesn't change if it's genuine or authentic. So this kind of love expresses faith in the beloved individual beyond all of his or her imperfections uh, and recognizes a kind of ultimate potential that's there. A nice example, I think, of what, or a couple examples from literature, what Kiergaard has in mind here might be um, the nephew in Dickens' famous story, you know, that we, Sometimes if you watch that movie at Christmas time, right? The nephew who's convinced that there is somewhere in his Uncle Scrooge a better man struggling to get out, right? Despite all evidence to the contrary. Well, that seems to be a good example of uh, a family, a love within family that's infused by something more like agopic love. Or in Shakespeare, uh, in what I think is his greatest work, Cordelia's unending love for her errant father, King Lear. This love operates within a bond of close kinship, but infuses it with the saving generosity of heaven. It clearly transcends any natural or non-willed kind of human affection. Even when he scorns her completely, she remains true to him. And why? It's not really clear, right? There's a sort of deep mystery there. Kierkegaard envisions this kind of unconditional commitment being given within special relations uh, to particular people. So the lovers, the friends, view their imperfections not as reasons to withdraw love, but as tests to overcome together. So there's a kind of almost infinite solidarity on this view possible within the special love relations. I think that's probably the most promising way of combining them on Kierkegaard's view. Um, but in the interest of time, let me see how far I've gone here. I don't wanna keep you too long before questions. Um, we have at least 10 minutes for von Hilde to com compare and contrast von Hildebrand. Um, it takes all the time you okay. <laughs> especially for von Hildebrand, right? We have to, <laughs> uh, no, he's, he's definitely worth it. Uh, I think The Nature of Love is probably the most subtle and systematic work on love that I've ever read. Uh, it it uh, builds, of course, on many great works in the past, including Kierkegaard's works of love. Um, but it, one of its great virtues that, is that I think it does a better job than Kierkegaard managed to of interpreting the natural love relations. Um, doesn't just reduce them to a kind of erotic seeking of one's own perfection through relation to the other person. That's I, the chief point of four that I want to list uh, for von Hildebrand that are on the handout. Um, 
So the first is this claim, right, that his natural, uh, his conception of the natural loves is superior because it insists that their relation to my subjectivity, as he puts it, my own consciousness, my own agency, including concern for my own happiness through these loves, does not make them egoistic, either in the Hobbesian sense of just looking for material benefit, friends got a nice pool, villa in France you could visit in the summer, this kind of thing, right? Um, or in the more abstract sense of a platonic eros as an appetitus for the lover's own perfection. Against this, von Hildebrand argues that in the natural loves, the push towards union with the beloved has the character of what Martin Buber calls an I-thou relation with another person in all her alterity, which is to say uh, it's something that's achieved, as he calls it, by an interpenetration of looks, a sense of connection between two consciousnesses, two people's agency. At least that's how I understand him. Um, and I think you know, he's clearly indebted to, to Martin Buber in this, in this idea. So the union with my beloved, say in a romantic relation, right, uh, in which I hope, uh, I fully hope will contribute to my own happiness when completed, uh, if the other person reciprocates, is still secondary to my concern for the objective good of the beloved person. My response to the other as a, a person having unique value arises in the realm of other values associated with her positive traits, whatever those might be. So there's both a sense of responding to the other person for their own sake and a response to objective, uh, objectively important or significant values here. In agreeing with Kierkegaard that Eigenleben or proper self-concern is crucial for a good human life, von Hildebrand also argues that this right kind of self-love is a necessary basis for the other special loves and that in such loves the happiness and salvation of the beloved person rank higher than the happiness of my own union with him. That's a, a quote. So my happiness through relation with the beloved on this view is an intended end, but only a secondary goal of my friendship or my romantic relation with them. Here's an insight I think recovered from Aristotle, that we can care about the other person's good for its own sake, while also hoping for our own happiness through the friendship, right, in Aristotle's discussion. Uh, and that seems to be, to me at least, quite true to our experience of these natural love relations. Beyond this, von Hildebrand also stresses that uh, much of the happiness I derive from completion of a loving relation as at least part, is at least partly a byproduct, or as he calls it, an epiphenomenon of an effect of caring about the other person for their own sake. So it's, you know, it, it may be that my primary concern is for their own good, but I, in fact, derive some sense of fulfillment um, from pursuing their good, from the kind of active relation with them that that involves. So relative to my primary goal and loving actions towards my beloved, my happiness from union with them is then largely an unintended side effect. At a secondary level, it can be thematic or intended for me, though only equally to my hope that the union will also contribute to the beloved's happiness in turn. This is a much more complex and I think more realistic picture of what goes on in the special love relations. All this is consistent with the idea that in natural loves, I am concerned for the beloved for her own sake, but also concerned about with achieving and sustaining my particular relationship with her, which would help explain that aspect of exclusivity that Kierkegaard is rather suspicious of. A strict Kierkegaardian might say here, that this is, after all, a very optimistic picture of the special loves that describes their ideal state when they avoid many types of possessiveness, 
interest in our own perfection and plain selfish interest in material benefits uh, along with side benefits that I get to ignore other needy people in the process of focusing on my friends or my beloved and so on. So, you know, Kierkegaard, I think, would have some serious doubts about this, um, given the way that real-life preferential loves often work out. Von Hildebrand is not uh, unrealistic about this, though. Um, he distinguishes authentic natural loves from their, you know, completely uh, real-world uh, forms, right? And many times they are subject to various kinds of perversions or distortions. One of the, uh, the reasons why we need caritas, uh, you know, charity, neighbor love in his sense, to inform the special love relations is to try to save them from the various ills or distortions that natural loves can be, can be heir to. I think, though, he gives a convincing description of how special loves work in at least their authentic form. They are not necessarily possessive or just selfish. And the most important element, he adds, the Buberian idea of an I-thou union with the other as a treasured, unique, irreplaceable, unpossessable person, suggests how a special love relation could share something with agopic love. So it's no surprise when he adds that, quote, the penetration of all other categories of love with this stream of caritas, quote, unquote, that comes from the awareness of God's universal love actually brings to perfection the natural loves. They need to be infused with caritas to realize their full potential. In particular, this Buberian interpretation of the union with the other, the intentio unionis, as he calls it, in non-distorted or authentic natural love, suggests a kind of attention to the other, that while valuing her unique traits as a way of, and her way of embodying them, uh, synthesizing them in a particular life history, also, also pushes our attention beyond these features to the very person that has these features of these traits. And that's something that transcends the particular properties that a person has at any one time, or even over an entire lifetime. We're almost, in that sense, becoming aware uh, of the individual freedom of the other that can turn to me in an I-thou relation, something behind all of those individual traits or properties in the other person. Whatever the problems of his own account may be, Emmanuel Levinas has probably taught us that attendance to Alterity in this sense, the freedom, the independence of the other, is a central aspect of agopic love. And this can be found in Kierkegaard's account as well, though it is not stressed or developed as well as it is, I think, in von Hildebrand's view. Buber provides the suggestion that von Hildebrand has developed then, that the love of the other's alterity at the core for being can transfigure all the various special loves as well. Thus, I would say von Hildebrand's description of the authentic special loves already includes some expectation of their being connected with agopic love. At least we could call this an alterity-focused version of the special loves, which is about as far as possible from the way Kierkegaard portrays them. It's a much more optimistic view, and his, Kierkegaard's portrayal is much more pessimistic in that way. All of that, believe it or not, was the first point on von Hildebrand. So I'll try to be quicker on the other points. Uh, very quick, in fact. The second point I want to highlight, um, after praising you know, his account of the, the special loves, uh, is that he shares with Kierkegaard an emphatic distinction still between these natural loves and agopic love. But he draws the distinction more carefully because he argues that in loving my neighbor, I step out of my own subjectivity or familiar perspective in a way that I do not in love of friends, spouse, child, etc. Because these loves, the natural loves, even in their best form, 
must concern my well-being secondarily and in combination with the beloved's happiness. By contrast, um, loving the other is neighbor. And I think he seems to apply this term, neighbor love, especially to love of the stranger, right? To the person who really isn't someone known to through some other relationship. This kind of love of neighbor does not concern my happiness at all. Because, quote, my neighbor as neighbor is not a source of happiness for me, right? That's part of the very meaning of, of, of Caritas here, right? That it's a complete self-sacrifice. At most, there's a weak intention of union towards the other and hope for fellowship in the hereafter. So like Kierkegaard, von Hildebrand stresses that willing the good of the neighbor is not the same as total self-abnegation or self-denial for its own sake, kind of self-flagellation. That's not the point of agopic love. Uh, we shouldn't lose all interest in our own good. Kierkegaard even seems to hold that there's such a thing as agopic love of oneself, interestingly enough. So, uh, you know, it, it, it has, there's a positive uh, version of self-love that has an agopic quality. Um, but uh, von Hildebrand and Kierkegaard do agree, you know, that there is a clear distinction between, there's something higher about agopic love in its pure form. Now, I have a, something about it. There are a couple dangers, I think, in von Hildebrand's formulation, but I'm going to skip over in the interest of time here and get to the third point. Um, you can come back to these if we, uh, if we have time and questions. The third point is that while von Hildebrand agrees with Kierkegaard that agopic love is distinguished by being commanded and by often being a direct expression of a will to moral rightness, it involves the will more directly, um, he explains agopic caring in a way that more clearly brings out its universality and non-preferentiality and the way these link up with valuing each neighbor as unique and irreplaceable. So these are things Kiergaard wants to capture, but I think von Hildebrand does it a bit better. This is found primarily in the point uh, that uh, is so clearly articulated in the nature of love that hating one person A, let's call it person A, detracts from showing agopic love to person B in a way that we don't find, I could hate one person and have a friendship with another. There's no psychological incompatibility there, unfortunately, right? Uh, I could love my own children and you know, not feel anything for other people's children. Def definitely possible for human beings. But on von Hildebrand's view, and Kierkegaard would endorse this, but he doesn't explain it as, in, in as much detail, it, there's something conceptually incoherent about hating anyone if you're trying to show agopic love to other people. Uh, you know, hating the one person undermines fully giving your, your full love, uh, a wholeheartedness, you might say, uh, in your agopic love for anyone else. So that's probably how Kierkegaard would explain the point, right, that uh, agopic love must express one's whole being. Uh, as von Hildebrand puts it, the goodness dwelling in the soul of the one who loves has to come through. If it's not wholehearted, if you're hating someone else, it really isn't uh, the authentic or full version of agopic love. There's a potential problem here when von Hildebrand adds that with Christian love of neighbor, the intentio, intentio benevolentia, the uh, intention to be benevolent, pure self-sacrifice or gift, is not the result of affirming my neighbor in a value-responding way. It is rather an actualization of the goodness dwelling in the soul of the one who loves. Although this goodness can only be actualized in a value response to my neighbor, I find what's valuable or delightful in them. The one who loves another with love of neighbor is good to the other on the basis of the goodness and the fundamental attitude of love that reigns in him, again, projecting it out from 
the person who's doing the loving to the neighbor, he brings this to the encounter with the other rather than finding justification for it. This seems to be the closest that von Hildebrand comes to this idea that agapic love is not property-based, the claim that distinguishes Nugren's analysis. Um, but in fact, I don't think that's really what von Hildebrand means uh, because he does write just a few pages later that there's a beauty and worth that inheres in every human person for as long as he lives, even if it's stained by the worst qualitative disvalues including moral wrongs. This is the image of God in each person, which Kierkegaard refers to as the divine watermark. To me, this implies that agopic love for both thinkers does respond to something essential about the neighbor. There is some kind of response to their essence, if you like, to what makes them a person. There's a distinct kind of value found in the capacity for free will, independent life, and the other person's capacity to love that are standard for human persons. The willed effort of agopic love is justified on the basis of these features in the other person, which will also be found in the person who's the object of our special attention in any natural love notice, right? That's a crucial point. So it still responds to some kind of a transcendent value, although this value does not attract according to familiar inclinations. It's not an eros response. The value of personhood itself does not appeal to my subjectivity in a way that draws on my personal affinities uh, for certain values rather than others in the world, like my, my tastes or my appetites, those to which my emotions happen to respond more readily. Rather, it is my neighbor who stands at the center of my attention and not my personal union with him or her. That's a passage from von Hildebrand. And this implies a certain independence of the neighbor from me. We might say that this alterity involved in the other person's freedom is more fully thematized in agopic regard. So in neighbor love, the primacy that the beloved person possesses in all authentic cases of natural love is really radicalized. I can show agopic love to another person without calling him or her into any continuing relation with me. And that's, I think, a particular insight in von Hildebrand's view. But so I want to maintain you know, that he's, he's a little more careful about how he defines neighbor love uh, than Kierkegaard is, but both want to maintain that there's some sort of a response to something uh, that's a value, that's worth responding to. It's not just a completely arbitrary gift from the person loving in that sense. So I'll try to wrap up here. Uh, there's a lot more to say, um, but um, I want to come back to the question of, of how, uh, you know, the two forms of love relate in von Hildebrand's view. Uh, for this, I need to just explain that caritas, in his understanding, is a qualitative aspect of love, right? There's a distinction between that and the category of neighbor love as love for stranger in his work. So he defends this distinction on the ground that caritas is found in authentic human love for God, which involves an ultimate desire for union that we don't find in the same way, say, in loving a human stranger. Likewise, Christ's love for human persons has a quality of caritas, but involves a will to union with the individual that interhuman neighbor love lacks. So this makes sense to me, and it perhaps helps explain how it is that caritas could infuse the other different forms of, um, of interhuman love, right, the different special loves. Strictly speaking, neighbor love cannot be expressed within the natural loves, uh, even in their authentic forms, if I understand von Hildebrand correctly. For these special loves always aim at some more detailed or developed kind of union with the other person uh, that involves a kind of intimacy with the other person, 
uh, to the extent we, we take that person's attention away from other people they might interact with, right? But the quality of caritas can and should infuse all the natural loves, and it does this by removing the danger of egoism for the beloved person or preference for them beyond the bounds of justice. At least that's one of the ways that uh, von Hildebrand explains it. I think this is on the right track, uh, and to work it out, we need to fully isolate what the agopic quality uh, of caritas is, as he understands it, and how it can infuse the other special love relations. But the way von Hildebrand explains this relation of caritas to the other forms of love looks again a little bit like the corrective or filtering version we found in Kierkegaard's first account, according to which neighbor love checks the other natural love. So if that's what caritas does, again, it seems like it's you know, sort of a moral uh, constraint reigning in uh, the excesses of various forms of natural love. Von Hildebrand says that Caritas provides more than a protective wall erected by the fundamental moral attitude against the dangers of natural love. And his idea seems to be that Caritas avoids all forms of egoism spontaneously without the pain of conscientiousness or having to really you know, force ourselves to do what we know is right. But a fully positive relationships between the loves requires a further step. We have to specify how special attentions given to certain others in natural loves can themselves be expressions of the spirit of Caritas at the same time. I'm not sure that von Hildebrand would like Kierkegaard's more volitional suggestion, the suggestion that this is a willed effort, uh, you know, to give um, attention to a person uh, over the long haul, right? I'm, maybe he, I'm not sure on that. You can let me know if, if you think he would like that explanation. Kierkegaard seems to lean rather heavily on the will in that account of how uh, neighbor love could inform the other, the other forms of love. This raises the question, I'll close with this, of how the closeness with another that we offer in natural love can be strengthened by a volitional effort of commitment never to abandon the other. I think that makes sense if our special attentions within natural love can communicate to the other person not only that we prize his happiness above our own or appreciate her good qualities beyond our own delight in them, but also that we do this partly because it can express an, express an absolute gratitude for the very existence of another person. Communicating that seems to be part of what agopic regard is about. For example, beyond communicating to our spouse that we adore her beauty and value all the good qualities of her character, we have to express between the lines, as it were, that we prize above all these features her very being and potential because of her basic independence and sanctity as a person. This, is, this might sound like I'm lacing Kantian duty with romance. That's not what I mean. I want to indicate instead that we can, in a special love relation, we can fully appreciate the deeper mystery behind the physical and psychical traits of the other person or underlying the shared experience and historical relationship that you develop with someone in a long friendship or marriage or you know, through your childhood with uh, uh, you know, other siblings. Beyond that, there's something further, something deeper, something more mysterious that we can eventually uh, come to appreciate and we can communicate that appreciation to the other person. Although we might sometimes express this by being unwilling to do injustices for the good of the spouse or friend or child, verifying that our love for them ultimately endorses the same reality as the basis of duties to other people, we also express it more positively and more directly in intimate attention shown to them rather than to strangers, 
to show them that we love them not only for the values to which our form of special love naturally responds, but also for the inner glory of their being as a center of mystery that we could never possess. So we express in that attitude a kind of thanks to God for them that goes beyond um, anything that we could expect from them just out of our personal relationship with them. Maybe I'll close with that. Thanks very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.